Welcome to episode 160 of A Pint with Shawnee B. Slow day today. We're both a little bit hanged over. I'm here with the Don as ever. Hello. Uh, and she's actually broadcasting from the bed, would you believe? Uh, I have deigned to sit up and sit in a chair. We are in slight recovery mode. Big day yesterday of drinking and other things. Uh, one of the great things to do on a weekend when you are hung over, if you are ever hung over, especially if it's on a Saturday morning, is to tune into an absolutely brilliant radio show called the Johnny Friendly Radio Show. We've started listening to it in the last few months uh, religiously. It is hosted by a former guest on A Pint with Johnny B, Theo Delaney. And he's a great, just soothing voice in the morning for two hours, 10 till 12 if you go on Facebook and find the Johnny Friendly radio show, uh, you can get all the links to it. And I think it's on Mixcloud as well. If you're a member of Mixcloud, you can hear past shows. Uh, it's a great show, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. Obviously, myself and Theo had a little to-do. So, yes, uh, the Don and myself were uh, driving back from Cork the previous Saturday. And uh, what happened? Well, we were driving back and we were listening to Theo's radio show. We were thinking, this is great. He has fantastic tunes. It's like the songs that you kind of go, oh, I forgot about that. And you straight yeah. away want to go and download it. So great tunes um, like that. We're a bit worse for wear and we're driving back. And it's a long drive. And then he gives us a shout out. He says hello to us. And we were like, isn't that lovely? And then he says the words British and Isles beside each other in a sentence in reference to the island we live on. Yeah, so we've we the previous show that we did, we talked in great detail, primarily for our friends overseas on both sides of the island of Ireland, uh, our friends in Britain and especially those in America who tend not to have a fucking clue about the history of our country. The Don took quite a bit of umbrage and issue with this. It's yeah, because last week we were all kind of peace, reconciliation, and this week I'm like, yeah. what? Fucking British Isles. And Theo Delaney had to blow it and take a listen to what happened on his show yesterday. You're listening to the Johnny Friendly Radio Show here on en5radio.com. My name is Theo Delaney. And uh, if you want to get in touch, I recommend you visit the Johnny Friendly Radio Show Facebook group where people get in touch and say hello and put in requests. And uh, I received an email this week that scared the living bejesus out of me uh, last week. I mean, I should put this into context, first of all. I am of Irish stock, as you might imagine, someone called Delaney. I am, as it happens, of Irish Republican stock. My grandfather, B-Bar, to whom I was close, he was a proud Republican and quite a fierce one as well. He sung the songs and he had, uh, you know, trenchant views. And so we all kind of had him. We were brought up that way. So imagine my horror. When I was pulled up this week by a correspondent from the Emerald Isle on my use of the term last week, British Isles. Now, in my ignorance, I th I'm so stupid. I thought British Isles was just a geographical term that was a shorthand way of saying Britain and Ireland. But of course, when you think about it, if you're Irish, you might find that offensive. And I've, uh, I've received a threatening letter uh, it contained the words, I say letter, it was an email, contained the words, we know where you live. Uh, it contained the words, uh, let's have a look here. Uh, well, 
the listener said that their blood turned to ice in their veins to hear the words British and Isles crammed together as though they have any place beside each other in a sentence. Well, they've made some demands and uh, among them are that I play. They sent me a list, a fantastic list of 20 Irish records, which I am now going to... I'm going to methodically make my way through this list in the coming weeks and months uh, in fear of my life. This is Imelda May. So you put the, the heebie-jeebies up, Mr. Delaney. Yeah, Richard, now... He didn't mention your name. He's. It may only be that the people who listen to A Pint Would Surely Be are the ones who know that this correspondent from the Emerald Isle, as Theo calls... Uh, her didn't even mention it was a her. No. Uh, he maybe wanted to keep you a little bit under wraps for fear know. of reprisals. Actually... So I don't know if it's the Don thing, but frequently people don't name me when they give out about me. It might be a Jerry Adams source thing. The Don sent uh, Theo Delaney and the Johnny Friendly radio show a list of Irish songs that he may not have heard of, as you heard him there introducing uh, Imelda May's fantastic Johnny Got a Boom Boom. He, I think as it was playing, um, well, let, let's have a listen. Excellent. We started those three with Imelda May. Now, I don't know if I'm, pa- I am prone to paranoia. And I've just realised that, as I said, the uh, our correspondent from the Emerald Isle made what, what was called a list of, turned as a list of demands, which is actually about 20 great Irish records. But the first one, or one of the first ones, certainly the one I played, it's called Johnny Got a Boom Boom. Now, this is the Johnny Friendly radio show, and I don't know what Got a Boom Boom could mean in the context of it. I mean, we don't do politics on this show, and Irish politics in particular is a minefield, and I use the term advisedly. So, boom boom, I don't know. Maybe I'm just probably just hopefully being paranoid. Johnny Got a Boom Boom. That is the Johnny Friendly Radio Show. We can't recommend it heavily enough, highly enough. We can't recommend it more highly. We can't recommend it more heavily enough. We can't give it any higher, heavier recommendation than the heaviest, (laughs) highest recommendation that we could highly give it. (laughs) It's on every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Just when you're getting out of bed with that dusty hangover, find it, listen to it. The music's fantastic. And we also today, you know, a bit slow, but we did have some, the Don had some very, very happy news yesterday or the day before. What happened? I did. Many listeners from Ireland, they all know what I'm talking about. It's a very, very big week for us. It's, it's been a few years coming. So General O'Doherty is a far-right activist and respected journalist. Now I'm doing air quotes, you can't see them. The reason I'm doing air quotes is because every time she's referenced in the paper, I love the fact that they put... They put respected journalist in inverted commas it drives her mad anyway yeah so she's an absolute weapon one of these tinfoil hat wearing racists so she she she's she was whipping up i mean one of your previous guests had made an attempt at that and i find it deeply embarrassing that people actually follow Gemma O'Darty. she has a following and peter casey couldn't get anybody well, Peter Casey got 21% of the vote, you have to remember, in the election. Yeah, but he's still never gotten anywhere. He but can't. what was more disturbing about Peter, and you know, I know Peter knows family well, but I was absolutely stunned at the way he approached that, the, the sort of muckraking racism 
you know, we go on about America and the shithole country and all that. We were going to talk a little bit about the fact that there is this underlying nasty element in Ireland headed by people like yeah, so uh, I mean, and, and do, and we, fomented by people like Peter Casey when he when he came to yeah. Penn. I mean, we're, we're quick enough to talk about it in America, and this is exactly the shithole country stuff, but here, and it does yeah. exist here, and it is embarrassingly getting bigger. So this, this week, General Doherty would probably be the most well-known name of people stirring the shit. And she's been just desperate to be arrested for years. And she's like, she was outside the apartment here last year, was it last year? For weeks and weeks and weeks with her patriots. So the big news was Gemma O'Doherty got arrested. Gemma O'Doherty is someone who has been uh, outside our apartment block last summer with a band of kind of half-breeds, people with sort of bad dental work and cross-eyed and crucifixes and Hitler salutes, playing the Wolf Tones music at full peg outside my my and everyone who lives in my apartment block's building because that's where we live beside Google. And they did it most of the summer, nearly every day, fucking the men behind the wire and all all these bullshit Irish rebel songs. I forgive them if they played that one. Yeah, and, and waving Irish tricolours and, and, and basically saying Irish jobs for Irish people, immigrants go home, we shouldn't have immigrants into this country. Outside Google, which would be probably in Dublin, the most multicultural street stroke area of the city. It's where a lot of people from overseas work in Google. Of course, Google has been mm-hmm. closed because of COVID most of this year and they haven't been. But... What has happened is the... Well, I mean, I, I was down there with the um, anti-fascist uh, protests, their counter-protesting, so I was down, down, down there to witness it and charmingly uh, came across some ex-outlaw family members of mine. But now I was down there and there was a mother going by who lives here and clearly not Irish, but she lives here. And she's going by with this small child who couldn't have been more than four. And she, she asked, she said, what's what's all this? Like, what's the protest for? And they snapped her and said, it's to get rid of people like you. They've got the tricolour, they've got all of the Irish jobs for Irish people. But the idea, well, we're not actually racist, no, you are, because you literally are racially abusing people on the street where they live. There is this grumbling, rumbling, a small percentage, but growing of these people. They would be classically the Irish version of the redneck Donald Trump supporter, the slightly thick prick in America who thinks by voting for someone like Donald Trump, their life is going to get better because Donald Trump is a man of the people. That sort of idiot, right? But what's happened here in the, since COVID is this... Yeah. They're starting to get noisier and bigger. Like, look, you, you want to be nuanced about it, but the simple fact is, if you wind back to the start of COVID, before there was anything about masks and before it was, you know, you could be anti-mask, right? Literally at the very start of it, you'd go... Now, what will the anti-vax, anti-5G, anti-immigrant, anti-abortion, pro-Catholicism, what will they say? Let's take a wild fucking guess. They just have to do the opposite of the mainstream. So they will be the anti-mask, and lo and behold, that's what they're at. So last week there was a protest in Dublin, which was an anti-mask protest that they then claimed wasn't an anti-mask protest, but every sign involved not wearing masks and wake up sheeple. Uh, there were a few around the country, smaller ones. There was one bar- ba- banner saying that masks are for slaves. Yeah, so they, so Ireland is on the cusp of another major corona outbreak. We're kind of packing them in at about 150 uh, cases a day now for the last 10 days. And the schools go back tomorrow, most of them. So it looks like there's double trouble. Ahead. Deaths are down because I think we've got our shit together in nursing homes. But... 
there was 3,000 people on the streets last weekend, mm. uh, none of them wearing masks, protesting about the mask wearing. And the government, as some of you have been following the show regularly, will know that we have a new government and they're absolutely making a bollocks of everything. Mm. They're having an absolute nightmare. They're dropping the ball left, drink driving ministers resigning, golf playing. Oh, it's shit show. Prime t- TDs uh, getting caught, not social distancing after them telling, you know, just old school gentocracy Ireland the Ireland that we're hoping to get rid of, the Ireland of the men in the 80s, 90s and 2000s who basically confiscated this country just to look after their own interests. Yeah, so I mean, now there's an insidious thing happening. It's not grassroots. You've got a few different people. You've got General Dirty, you've got that. And then you've got, of course, people are bored. They're bored and they're fed up and any excuse. It's like the cognitive dissonance that we're capable of is, is just breathtaking. Like, I don't believe those 3,000 people, many of them at all, actually believe their own shit. I believe people want to go on holidays. Like, there's a, there's a girl I came across, I can't quite grasp how she manages this level of, of cognitive distance. So she's a teacher. And from the start of, like, of, of COVID, it's, you can kind of straight away grumble of, but I go away every summer. <laughs> I, I, I go to the Canaries. I want to do that. And then suddenly, I was like, give it a week, give it a week. Straight away, it's all shite. Lockdown's shite. This COVID thing, scandemic. And I'm like, that's really convenient. So what you're saying is you want to go on your fucking holiday. But it made it, it meant that she could go and she could enjoy herself by signing up to, well, I'm actually, I'm proud of what I'm doing. Mm. Now, she knows it's horse shit. And I think that you've got 3,000 people there. I mean, some of them are absolute idiots. But an awful lot is just selfish. I Like, it's paying the hold. Nobody's enjoying this COVID thing. Nobody's enjoying restrictions. So like, do what we have to do. Nobody wants to stand up and go, yeah, I'm actually just a shitty person, to be honest. I can see that this is what we have to do. Yeah. I can see that people are dying. But I'm just a selfish prick. So I'm going to have every house party I want. I'm going to go on my holiday and shut up it's sorry about your kid who's high risk. <laughs> like, no one's going to say that. It's much easier to go, oh, it's a scamdemic. It's scamdemic and the masks are worse and the government are, they're lying to us and it's it, it's all <laughs> it's all a cover. And also that's convenient because I get to go on my holiday. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend, you know, who's who's well off, who's a business owner. He took his family to America and Portugal. Couldn't give a fuck about what the regulations. I haven't spoken to him about it, but I know he was away in holidays. Yeah. Um, so it's so there's a couple of things worth from from my point of view worth maybe talking about. One is there has been a huge number of let's call them conspiracy theorists. Let's look at America. Let's look at Donald Trump being a prime saber rattler of the conspiracies. Mm. Well, first of all, about the virus itself. So when the virus came out first, there was a rumor that the morbidity, the mortality rate could be of the order of three to six percent, which is huge. The the mortality rate of the general flu that comes to most countries in the winter months is about 0.05 percent. So, yes, there was always people going saying it's just like another flu. It's just like another flu. Incorrect. The early understanding was that this was going to be serious and it got serious and just to put it in context i may have said this in the podcast before it took america 10 years to reach a hundred thousand deaths from aids which is also a virus it took america three months to reach a hundred thousand deaths from COVID. okay what has happened since is the fact that the mortality rate has dropped to roughly between 0.7 and 1 percent which is still five times more deadly than the flu so the idea that the thing was a hoax or that it was brought in to tame the masses or that we were all to be indentured and enslaved, it's a pretty... Pretty elaborate 
separate hoops. Yeah, it's a bit, pretty big hammer to crack open a nut like that, right? You're closing down the entire world, yeah. right? So a conspiracy theorists are abounding everywhere. And now you just mentioned the the, the, the guys here talking about the masks. The masks are, mm. for a second. Well, I mean, at that march, like the, specifically the one in Dublin, because I, I watched the footage, and what, what was intriguing was, I mean, we, we, you can all guess it's the same around the world, what shite they're saying, that like vaccines are the devil and... You know, so it's all the same shite. There's nothing fresh. They're just regurgitating it. But like they haven't even done their homework in that they were there saying, we're not anti-mask, we're, but we're just pro-civil liberty. Then they're also saying, but the masks are dangerous because you're more likely to get COVID, which isn't real. Yeah. Like, and fuck the government because yeah. the government, they murdered our, our elderly people by how, and the government did mishandle lots of things. But in the same mad, bizarre speech, they're saying... First of all, it's not as serious as people are saying. Second of all, the whole thing's a hoax and it's made up. It doesn't yeah. even exist. It's actually Soros and Bill Gates that are behind the whole fucking thing. And also, it's so that they can put 5G towers up while we're in lockdown. So it's not even real. It's it's made up. But most of all, the government killed our people with <laughs> yeah. And now they're trying to make us inhale this unreal made up thing through our masks. <laughs> so it's like, p- pick a... Pick a bullshit stop storyline and stick to it. So, I mean, there's no doubt the whole mask thing has been badly handled globally because when the virus first emerged, it, there were very clear directives from the WHO that you don't need to wear masks and they don't help. Hindsight is saying the reason they said that was because they knew there was going to be a run on PPE. But did we not know that at the time? I remember knowing that at the no, time. No, we did. They, 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 they I remember were, at the time thinking that the reason they were saying that was because they didn't want PPE. Okay, but they didn't say that. But they could have said, yeah. masks help. But we have only a small, small supply of them, yeah, so the wear them when you can. They actually said you don't need to wear them. Yeah, but the reason they did that is because people are selfish. Well, okay, but, so, I mean, but, like, that, but then the WHO is because... now lying to people. And if you start lying to no, people, I, well, I know, I the know. conspiracy theorists go off, off the dial. Yeah. You had to say the there's hardly any PPE. Bad governments everywhere don't have enough stockpiled. So be social distance, wash your hands. If you have a mask, wear one, but the masks are being prioritised for the hospital workers. There is the honest answer. Yeah, Deal there's with the it. honest answer. Yeah. But the problem is, I mean, I had this issue at the start, so particularly with our government's handling at the start, which I think most people would say was pretty, pretty okay. I disliked being lied to. I felt I was getting some of the story. But I also realised I've looked around at the knuckle-draggers I'm living amongst and gone, mm, well, yeah, they can't, like... You know, remember when the entire, when every channel in the world is saying, please stop buying up all the food and the toilet paper. Yeah. There's not a shortage except that people keep buying it. And then everyone's going, oh, fuck, I better go and uh, panic buy yeah. because otherwise the other panic yeah, I'm all right. I need toilet paper. I need to go on my holidays. You know, it's all, it's all that kind of Mayfainism yeah. of our, of, of not just our the whole world. The whole world. world. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then like people who didn't want to panic buy were kind of like, well, now, now, you see, now I have to go shopping because there's now a shortage because people are creating a shortage where there doesn't need to be a shortage. So now I have to make sure I get stuff in in case there's nothing in the next shop. I mean, like my understanding at the time, and I don't know if it was said or if it was other people's opinion, but I remember my, my understanding at the time was I don't know how effective masks will be, but clearly the every channel all around the world is saying we don't have, no nowhere has enough PPE. And they're going, yeah, no, no, you don't need masks. We absolutely need masks for hospitals. No, 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 you don't need masks. We're not, we're not actually, the World Health Organization is not actually uh, advising people to wear masks. Like, I kind of thought it was fairly fucking self-explanatory. Well, they just didn't want to advise everyone to go out and bulk buy them. Whatever has happened, it appears masks, as we all know now, are an important thing. And also, doctors in hospitals and nurses wear masks all the time in their jobs and they're not dropping down from other illnesses and stuff like that. So I think the idea of, 
you know, how healthy it is to wear a mask. You're not wearing it all the time. You're only wearing it when you're out. There is a need to try and keep this disease in check still. People are starting to lose their kind of Hmm. willpower. People are now saying, oh, we have to live with it. We have to let it go amongst us because we can't do another lockdown because the economic ramifications for that are too severe. And we're in this kind of no, no man's land, I think. Yeah, and I think... That's allowing people like this to start galvanizing as groups and start yeah. marching, you know, spreading like, the virus even more. We need to, like, really take a look at ourselves because obviously the problem is there's not really a perfect answer at any time and it's the least bad option a lot of the time. So there's room for disagreement and what the best thing is, even looking at the schools going back. Even within that, there's room for different opinion because no one really knows exactly what the correct thing to do is. But we also have to look at... Are we just being lazy bastards and taking the easy option? I mean, the same people they're going, it's not like it's not healthy to be wearing a mask when you're breathing in your own germs. I mean, that we don't know the bacteria that that actually does. And you're kind of going, I have seen what you ram up your nose on a Saturday night. Yeah. Did you fucking stop? Yeah. <laughs> like, so you kind of go, you're you're fooling nobody. So don't pretend. You can find any excuse you want, but let's be really honest. You just don't like the idea of having to inconvenience yourself and you're looking for an excuse. And it's it's what caused America off guard because when they were trying to implement a lockdown across the states of America, there was all this, well, you do you and I'll do me and let's not fall out over it. I don't want to wear masks. And it was just this kind of polite wank that yeah. American Americans are just known for. We all have our own points of view. Like, you know, the, the hydrochloroquine thing that Donald Trump was touting. Suddenly this doctor mm. emerges to say, oh, yes, it's working. And then half the country goes, see, Donald Trump was right. But the woman who came out with it, it was like a voodoo priestess yeah. who enjoys harvesting alien DNA from fucking children or something. And it's just like, oh, yeah, let's put her out. Let's put her out front against Dr. I Fauci. Her, yeah, no, I mean, like, you look or at Dr. Sanjeev Fauci. Gupta. You know, let's, let's, let's stick them out in front. Listen, that, I love and then Dr. Donald Trump, YouTube channel. Donald Trump comes wading in behind you. Yeah, I think she's a great doctor. She's a great, there's a lot of great people. What happens then is and all these people go, oh, well, you know, it's all, there's obviously something to it and you don't know everything. And it's just, some people are saying it's a flu and I'm treating it like a flu. And I'm just going to be careful and not do, you know. Meanwhile, badoom. You know? I mean, you're being a prick, fine. Yeah. But say, I'm selfish and I'm being a prick. Mm. I'm not willing to do the right thing. Bold me, I know it's not right. But don't sit there. Don't piss down my leg and tell me it's right. And don't sit there and go, well, actually, I know this, you know, this study. Stop arguing your point. You're being a prick. Wear it. Wear it. You're selfish. So in, to, to round the circle, uh, we have a growing, unfortunate level of racist right-wing Irish flag-waving inbred leprechauns on the march, on the rise. But one of their leaders is Gemma O'Darty, who we started the show with. She was arrested on the uh, on, on Footbridge. Um, Gemma and her, and her mates are putting up um, banners. So it was like, no to masks, some shit like that. And the guards came up and they were removing it. And Gemma has a really beautiful voice the dulcet tones of her screeching it's yeah here's a little sample of what she sounds like in full flow their arguments are based on a lie and every time they open their mouths now they are ridiculed we have seen this the sleeping giant is wakening across our country Irish people are resurrecting Pierce's rallying cry that Ireland belongs to the Irish. 
She's quite famous for this. It's not, we're not just saying, oh, the voice on her, it's all because the shite she comes out with. She actually has a particularly distinctive voice that sounds like about 10 kittens and their mother thrown in a hessian sack and smashed against a wall over and over. And I've, I've had that voice up in my face and it's 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 just, it's, it's horrendous. Um, so yeah, she was screeching away at the guards. So one of the guards asked for her name and address and she's like, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you that. I'm not Iran just arrests her and she's in shock because she's been goading the guards for like two, three years and they're consistently warned. She gets away with so much because they're consistently kind of standing back to go, look, we know about her. And this guard, like you could see when he, it's, it's brilliant clip because you can see that he's arrived up and he has waited for this day. He has waited. His moment has come. Every other guard has been like, oh, Jesus, here we go. Don't engage with it. Don't engage with her. Watch what you say. Because a lot of, there have been a lot of videos where she's harassed guards and they've handled it really well. This fucker was like, no, not today. Not today. I've waited for this. He's done his stretches and he takes great pleasure. In <laughs> and so she's screeching, but her, her little friends just got these absolute knack mates. And one of them is D. So she's like, Jenna, I have your phone! I have your phone! Look what they're doing to Jenna! <laughs> Where with you, Jenna? And she fucks up. Like, she fucking belts it off the bridge. Like, oh, I'm going, I'm going. You go up there. I've got her phone. They only want the phone. They've got everything on the phone. Horse shit. Dee's like, look, you're getting arrested. I'm not. All of her mates just absolutely scatter. And, she, and there's a little tiny, there's a beautiful moment where you can just about hear, help. <laughs> Anyway, she's she's been she's been arrested. I think she's out on bail. One of the issues which is really intriguing and intrigued me about this is we have a lot of immigrants, not above what we I think should be bringing in given our population, but we have had a lot of immigrants coming in to the country over the last twenty years, and we have not provided and looked after them properly. There's a thing here called direct provision, which is a big, possibly rundown hotel that has been used to house these people. It takes them years and years to get processed. They're not allowed jobs until they get processed. It's been a shit show for years and getting worse, right? Mm. And then there's this right-wing thing. is says, well, we have a homeless problem in Ireland. We shouldn't be bringing in refugees until we can fix our own homeless problem. And we don't mind refugees. We just don't think that they're being looked after properly. So we're protesting against how we're minding, not minding the refugees, which is actually not true. No, that's horseshit. Mm. So there's a little bit of that, that and, but they're not, they're, I think they just can't hide their hate enough to pull that off. <laughs> no, because like I've been involved in, protesting against direct provision we're not protesting against the people in it we're protesting about the way that they're being treated because it's absolutely fucking horrific and that, that began when I was a kid and I remember having friends that were immigrants and I remember seeing how their family were living and I didn't know where to look I was like Jesus and now yeah. everyone knows about it it was awful so I mean there's an awful lot of people who are compassionate who are they demand an end to direct provision not to get rid of the people who are yeah. here but then you've got the far right who have actually burned out centres that were supposed to be used for direct provision and that that's not about looking after the people in it. That's literally you're not bringing them to our community. Burn literally arson attacks. That's how 
loving and kind they are. And it's amazing to kind of go, oh yeah, but we're our own homeless. You pricks wouldn't give a penny to the homeless. You would step over them in yeah. the street. Yeah. It's sad and it's something that is disturbing to me because of how it can creep very quickly into a country. You know, but What I find interesting is like there, there are so many facets to these groups, but they end up the same in every country. It's all the same shit. So I, I think it's interesting to look at why people are drawn to them. Now, obviously, we talked about like with COVID, but I don't think they get any, anything close to those kind of numbers in, next year. I think nobody would give a shit. It's selfishness and COVID thing. But there's also, there's a huge, there's the huge anti-science, anti-vax, all that kind of shit. The conspiracy theory type crap. And then you go, mm, who gets drawn to that? And my take on that is I find that an awful lot of women who are middle-aged have married money, but they themselves are not particularly educated. Hobby throws them the credit card all too often. And basically they're thick as shit, right? But they are self-important and they've become accustomed to being treated with a certain amount of importance. And it offends them when people are getting on online and they they can't hold their own. And then they discover these groups where everybody else is also thick as shit and peddling crap. And suddenly they're elevated to, there's an element of importance and people listen to them as if they're not thick as shit and ignorant and not educated whatsoever. Like we were watching clips of the protest last week and even with some of the men that were talking, I was like, now look at him. Look at the fucking head on him. But you can just tell looking at them. Yeah, you used to do doorman on a pub and now you're getting on a bit and you're not tough enough to do it anymore. But you're, you basically, you've spent your life, you're not educated, you're nobody important they wouldn't have you in Leinster House. There would never be a microphone put in front of you anywhere that matters. But now, because you're amongst the dregs, suddenly you're important. So I think that there is an element of people needing to feel important and they will never be worthwhile or, or they'll never be wanted in respectable circles. But amongst the knuckle-draggers, they can string a sentence together and now suddenly they get the ego. Here's an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. It's not a virus. It's not a virus, it's a flu. I also see that the guards are getting more powers to break into your home and drag you out if you don't comply with social distancing and you can get six months in prison. I'm going to read you a quote that I've seen in the newspaper here and I know we don't believe everything that's in the newspaper. What I do is, I look at all the news, I take out the truth and I get rid of all the crap, all the lies. This is a quote here. Gary may, may also, working with the request of the health or other officials, take a person to a particular place or break in, break and enter into a particular property. We have rights. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. This, this whole idea of wearing face masks is idiotic. If people look at the box that they come in, it clearly states the warning says these masks do not protect you against COVID-19 or any other coronavirus. Okay, so due diligence, we have a bit of a problem developing here in Ireland. If you're listening from whatever country you're in overseas, keep an eye out you know, on the rise of dopey populism. I'm, myself and the Dom would be very left of centre socialist in outlook and this is not socialism this is you know fascism this is um, 
something else entirely. Anyway, after all that good news, Gemma O'Doherty getting arrested, we're here to pick number six in the Don's top 20 countdown. As ever, she has three clues for me to see if I can remember the guest that she has picked. Clue number one. Quoting a Jesuit philosopher, if you want to change the world, you first have to change yourself. Okay, I need another one. Uh, we're regarded now as a grown-up nation, but I think now we're losing aspects of our ethos as we've grown. Okay, so it's someone from Ireland. Okay, next. Remember, Sean, when you're pointing the finger, there are three pointing back at you. Oh, it is. This, this is my father. <laughs> this is my father. 84 years young. Um, they are hunkered down in my hometown of Cabinteely, himself and my mother, during COVID. My father was one of the famous, most famous uh, ventriloquists Ireland has ever produced, would, would you believe? And he had his own show for much of the 60s called Children's Hour on RTE. He was one of the opening acts on RTE television. I think he made them the act that followed the president opening Irish, uh, the Irish television uh, channel. And uh, he's uh, also been a very successful businessman and uh, he's, he's very well read and he likes TV and he has a point of view on things. And it was interesting um, interviewing one's dad. What did you what did you make of it? Oh, I love the interview. I think it's great. And I mean, you know, sorry, your it's, dad was great as well. Gerald, obviously. Is the... Sorry, sorry th- th- this is an interview as well with the ventriloquist and his dummy. So there's three people in the room, even though it's on audio. So you have to you have to let your imagination work hard here. So, I mean, I, I love it. Um, I enjoyed it because it's your dad. And I find, <laughs> I find it entertaining watching you because, you know, we all have different masks or dummies. But <laughs> we're all different people in different scenarios. And like, I, I know you very well. I know what you're like when you're around your family. I know what you're like when you're doing your podcasty thing and you've got the you've got the voice going and you've got the, <laughs> and you've got the headphones on and I found this intriguing. <laughs> so I, I got I got joy out of that in general because you're trying to do your podcast thing, but also it's your dad. Yeah, and my dad has uh, said, and I, I I totally agree with him on this that you know he he talks a little bit about his own father uh, during the Second World War when he was growing up. And how, you know, little we tend to get from our parents. We don't talk to them. It was kind of weird sitting down talking to, to dad because I, we, we cover a lot of ground that we spar on generally. He's very capitalist, right wing, and I'm kind of more socialist and we do spar about that. And we, there's, a, there's a little bit of that going on. But, you know, I do, you do learn a, a lot of things and you, 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 you cover a ground that you don't normally cover in you know, when we're out for meals or when we're just chatting, you know? Yeah, I think it's nice because, I mean, I know, like, you kind of, you never really start a conversation. You just over and back and, you know, you don't think about it. Whereas in this, you have to sit down and you're doing an interview and you're talking about his life. And so suddenly, because there's a structure on it, because an interview, it's very interesting because I think you probably hear each other more. And like it's interesting to to see you chatting to him about some of the same stuff you talk, talk about anyway. But you're talking to a guest on the podcast and it's an entirely different conversation. I think you learn a lot about each other more than just the usual over and back. Anyway, um, without further ado, I give you my own father, George Boyle, or as he was known, Shorsha. Shorsha, which is the Gaelic for August George. Harold. No, Shorsha August Barclay. He had a... Yeah, but Gerald Yes, podcast. I know. But then it becomes Shorsha and Gerald or George and Gerald. It was... But you've put down Shorsha and Gerald on the podcast. Did I say August? Well, you've no, put in um, the... What's that? Ampersand? Oh, ampersand. Okay. <laughs> Without further ado, Shorsha Ampersand Gerald. 
See you next time. <laughs> Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. This is a very interesting one. I have never uh, had two people on the show. I like to have uh, face-to-face interviews, as most of you who listen regularly know. And I kind of have two people on the show for the first time today, so I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not sure how it's going to go. Uh, I'm in my home city of Dublin, and I'm actually in my home home in Cavantili, which is in South County, Dublin. And for the second time in a pint with Shawnee B, there is a member of my family on the show today. It is my father, George Boyle. Uh, He is one of Ireland's foremost ventriloquists and has been for the last 50 or 60 years. And he has kindly contacted his old partner in crime by the name of Gerald. And Gerald and George are here today for your delectation. So welcome, George, first of all. Thank you very much, Sean. And welcome, Gerald. Thank you very much, Sean. What is all this about, George? You're on a podcast. A podcast? That's right. What's a podcast? Well, now, Gerald, it's um, it's sort of the internet. Ah, go on. It is. So what? Well, you see, Gerald, if, for example, if you were down in, 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 in Kerry... Yeah. ...and if you were out in the mountains... Yeah, where, where, where Star Wars was... Where Star Wars were, yeah. Or if you were up in Crow Patrick... Yeah. And if you went around... And, 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 and you turned on your iPhone, you could listen to this programme. I could not. You could so. I couldn't. Could I, Sean? I, do you have an iPhone? No, I couldn't. That's why I couldn't ah. hear it. <laughs> now, you stay I quiet for a your while. joke okay, there. you did, you did, you I'm did. I'm sorry you about did. that, Gerald. Oh, but yeah, Jesus. no, it's a... It's a there's what, sort of, what sort of a street man is this guy? No, I'm <laughs> sorry, know. I'm sorry. Not to worry, not to worry. It's a live show, you know. Yeah, ask okay. a question. Anyway, go on. All right, then. Here All we right. go. Well, my father, as I said, has been uh, uh, practicing ventriloquist for how long? Oh, he's practicing still. <laughs> 60 years nearly, aren't you? About well, uh, 60 years. Where yeah. did you two meet? Well, I came along sort of later because, first of all, he was practicing with somebody else. Isn't that right? That's right. I, I used to make my own ventriloquist dummies because I couldn't afford to buy them. Oh, you poor fella. That's right. They were very expensive at the time. Yeah. And uh, consequently, I, I made uh, a few earlier iterations of Gerald right. out of papier-mâché and I used those at school when I was performing for my school colleagues. Oh yeah, you were always making fun of the teachers, weren't you? That was one of the things we did, yes. So you were born in Dublin, uh, yes. George. I'm going to talk to George he first, wanted to hear his mother. Can we wait until we get to your life before we talk about you and see how okay. how okay. George came along first? I know what I'm not wanted. No, you're wanted, you're wanted. No, no. Sure, this is the first time I've had two people on the podcast and I'm a bit kind of shaky myself oh, as a know. presenter. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. <laughs> I do the best I can for you. All right. So, George, you were uh, you were born in Dublin in, was, in a yes. sort of a working class area. Yes. My father was a civil servant. He was very conscious that servants need to be civil if they're civil servants. Very good. And was very conscious that... Uh, he had a job to do, and he always did it to the best of his ability. What sort of a job did he do? In the he was service? in social welfare, would you believe? Uh. And he was also in the Department of Education. You're not kidding. Now, you stay quiet now, okay. And he was in the Army? He was in the British Army during the First World War. He enlisted early on in the war, uh, was more or less caught before firing a shot by the Germans, and spent, I think, the best part of the war in, in hospital. We don't really know what the story was because, like most young people, we always left it too late to ask our parents about what went on. 
Well, here I am. Here, I thought, here you are. Well, I can't tell you about my father. <laughs> I hope it's I not can, too late. I can tell you about me. Some of the things. One of the things that people listening to the show would probably find weird is that an Irish man would go fight for the British Army in the war, which started in 1914 at a time when we were probably as close as we'd ever come to um, getting rid of the British or fighting them out of our country. But a lot of Irish people had no jobs, and there's, there's a reason behind quite a lot of the Irish that went Well, there. again, the, the, as you know, there was a guy called Redmond who was recruiting people from Ireland to go over and fight for the small nations and make sure that they weren't overrun. To what extent that uh, influenced his particular choice, I don't know. So you don't know how he got injured, but was he injured when he came back, or was he? No, he was. He got uh, pneumonia in hospital. I think he was in Mannheim. We had some pictures of him looking very gaunt in in a hospital there. I know many times when I was out with him that he mentioned that if it weren't for the German doctors at the time, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So he was a prisoner of war. He was a prisoner of war, yes. And uh, he came back. So this was well before you uh, were around. Oh, he wasn't even a twinkle in the eye of the Lord at the time. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yes, he came back. First of all, I think he stayed in England. Mm. And he worked with what was called the the Crown Services over there, again in the civil service. And after the Irish situation developed, I think around 1922, the new government of the time wanted people to come back from abroad who had experience and who could run or help develop the civil service. And he came back at that time. So Ireland became its own country in 1922, leaving Northern Ireland as part of Great Britain, which it still is to this day. But from 1922, we had to set up a whole country from scratch, basically. So this is why they needed talent to come back and, and help f- found things. And then he met your mother. He met my mother Josephine. around 1927, I think, and, and uh, got married and he had four children. So yeah. what were your earliest memories growing up in that at that time in like 1930s, 40s Dublin? So it was another war. But there was indeed. Soon and, after and, you arrived. Uh, I remember when I was five, the bombing of North Strand the blackouts were very much in evidence because we were always afraid, although we were neutral, the government was afraid that our lights would act as a beacon for bombers coming across to bomb yeah. Belfast or, or Northern Ireland. Then I remember walking with my father, presumably in the North Strand, and seeing houses in rubble. I have a, a graphic memory of, of a, a bedpost, an iron bedpost mm. sticking out of the rubble with one of these golden knobs on top. Yeah. I vaguely remember this exchanging a few words with my father saying, have you seen service yourself? And him explaining that he had been in the First World War uh, and uh, had his own memories. What those memories were, I don't You never know. found out, yeah. No. Um, sadly, too late. Too sadly late. your we father... always leave it too late. Well, your father died when you were very young. He died when I was uh, 16. Yes, he did. Uh, that was rather a, a traumatic event, to be sure. Yeah. Mm. You were, uh, you and were. My mother had, uh, had to fend for herself. The first major event happened uh, in that uh, the year following, in 1952-53, because the Abbey Theatre burnt down in 1951, I think it was. But the players who were famous throughout the world were, were kept together. They were repositioned into the Queen's Theatre. And every year they had an Irish pantomime on. I auditioned with my then partner. Who was that? 
Bartley. Oh, yeah, Bartley, yes. I remember him, yes. Yeah. So a segue Bartley. there, because uh, George's yes. first puppet, a uh, dummy, um, I'm, I'm not sure, is that technically He's allowed? He's calling me a dummy. Is that, is Take that? my head off and hit him with it. Uh, no, uh, uh, are we, are we politically on. incorrect calling you a dummy, Gerald? Well, you can call me a dummy, you can call me a dummy. I don't care what you're calling me so long as it's not early in the morning. Okay? <laughs> All right? Okay. All right. Okay. So we'll use the word... Uh, dummy will do fine. Dummy. Yeah, that's um, Okay, I don't mind. Your first dummy was uh, an old Shanna Key called Barclay, That's right? That's right, yeah. He, 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 he was uh, with him in school. That's right. I used to do the show with Barclay. Uh, he was Santa Claus's assistant. Mm. No, he wasn't. Was he not? No, he was his, his assistant's assistant. Oh, that's right. He yeah. was assistant to the assistant. That's right. right. And she was gorgeous. <laughs> oh, boy, she was gorgeous. Yes, her name was Doreen Madden. And the Santa Claus was a fellow called Martin Dempsey, who left the civil service to become an actor, much to the amazement of everybody, because he left a pensionable job yeah. for the dicey career Creative. of yeah. a, a thespian. Did you say thespian? I did. Without moving your lips? No, I move my lips. You... You were able to say thespian as well. Thespian. It's a tricky okay, word. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky nice, word, Gerald, yeah, because yeah, you can yeah. often mix it up with another word. That's Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> None of that. There are children. So before we just finish that Abbey story, how did you meet Barclay? Barclay I made <laughs> down in, in Drumshambo. Your father's place. That's right. Drumshambo's in the Drumshambo's west coast of Ireland. Yeah. It was very expensive to buy plaster scene in those days, you see. So there was a special product called Daub out in the bogs. And you could make moulds from this. So right. we made a, a mould of an old guy's face put pepper mashy on top of that and when it was all dried out you scooped out the, the mould and then you had the, the, the form for the face and yeah. with that I made this old guy Barty Makonmara I called him right. okay and uh, he was my, my first uh, But how did you end up getting the inspiration to get into ventriloquism in the first place? Okay well um, I was coming home on a bus one day when I was 10 mm. and there was a guy a young lad on the bus who had just bought the Wizard comic this had a story about a ventriloquist called the Wooden Sheriff of Skeeker Creek. This ventriloquist, who was very small, he was only three or four feet tall, was touring the West, and he was so small he was afraid to do it on his own. So he built this massive dummy, and he used to sit on the dummy's knee, <laughs> and the dummy pretended he was a dummy. And oh. the, 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 so the whole series was how Clever. this young fella kept people confused so that they thought the sheriff was real and that he was just a dummy. But uh, yeah. it caught my imagination and I came home and my brother happily was getting the wizard every week. So I was reading these stories. I persecuted my father, who was a great... Uh, my mother and father both uh, were interested in reading and they'd come back with armfuls of books. So I said, look, any books in ventriloquism? So he found a couple of books in ventriloquism. I read them from cover to cover many times found out the basic rudiments and practiced and practiced. I was 10 when I started. I suppose partly came around when I was, what, 14, 15 or so. You know? It's amazing the way one story triggers a small mind to go, you know, that young mind to get so sucked into it. Well, to, I, yeah, to, I often wonder why, why, why ventriloquism and, and yeah. why, you know, why the theatre and why making jokes and things and... Uh, well, we'll come to that later on, maybe. Yeah, okay. So, okay, we're back then to the... was When you made Barclay, tell me what sort of happened. So, when you so had anyway, I was on the Abbey Theatre and I, I, I felt very important because here I was on the Abbey Theatre. Mm. And Gerald, yes, you know what the Abbey Theatre stands for? Well, if it stands for you, it stands for anything. 
<laughs> that's not what I mean. But uh, I was coming out, having done the show, and I was told that two young ladies wanted to see me at the at the stage door. The, the elder of the two, her name was Eta Hines, and happened to be a journalist. And she said, would I mind if she did a piece for me on the Sunday Independent? So right. I didn't know what the ethic was in the Abbey Theatre because it was a team work business yeah. in the theatre and... You know, this bit player coming in as Santa Claus's assistant, assistant, yeah. getting a piece in the paper. I didn't know how to go down. But anyway, she asked me to go along to get a photograph taken. She sent in a photographer the following day. And then she said to the young lady who was with her, we should get his autograph, you know. And she very, very slowly sort of produced her autograph book. And I signed it nonchalantly as if I did this every other day. What age you? I was just uh, 16 at this stage, you know. <laughs> I don't know if people can say this and sign their first autograph pretended, at 16. Uh, pretended that this was a, just a normal event. It transpired that a very good friend of mine, Pat O'Brien, whom you mm-hmm. know, happened to be at the theatre that same night really? with this lady. And she told me that the young girl had gone round to get Ray McAnally's autograph, who was right. the star of the show, right. <laughs> and wasn't at all pleased at getting this ventriloquist guy ahead of him. <laughs> ahead of him, you know. <laughs> what was it like going home that night when you just... I mean, how, oh, how long was the pantomime run? About three weeks? About or? seven or eight weeks, right. you know. Like every morning, I'd, I'd cycle in on my bicycle to school and the big... Billboard was on, Shatantag is a coo, Cullen and his dog. And I'd say, geez, I'm on that tonight, like, you know. Yeah. And uh, come home, have my dinner and cycle back into the into the theatre. When I'd done my piece of about 10 minutes or so, i hide myself home to the study. Study, yeah. Wow. And only appeared on the, uh, on the grand finale on the last night, oh. you know. But it was a fantastic experience. Seven nights, you know, you're forced to do the best you can each night. The repetition and trying to learn and getting the feel of the getting audience tight, and yeah. knowing it was very interesting. What did your friends in school think of it? Well, it, it, it was very funny. I was doing the same material all the time. Right. <laughs> but after I did the Abbey, everybody told me how much I had improved and how fresh my material was. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say anything. Yeah. They started listening to you because you... Well, this is the point. All of a sudden you had status because you were on the Abbey Theatre. Boy, oh boy, did I milk that for a long, long time. Did any of the guys in school, like, bully you or give up to think you were above your station? But but you see, uh, we had this uh, this concert every year in the Osnham Hall and all the kids would go along to it. I was uh, about 12, I suppose, at this stage in secondary school and uh, the older boys would help me rejig my scripts so that we got all the names, the okay. pet names of the, the teachers, teachers in yeah. there, you see. So every time I mentioned Pinky, there'd be a big, hey, or Boxer, hey. I mean, I was the star of the show. However, the following day when I went in, I found that some people weren't quite amused. You, you found know? out why Boxer was called Boxer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Boxer had me out of the, de- out of the, the blackboard ex- explaining why the two sides of an isosceles triangle or whatever, right angle triangle, are equal to the, 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 or the whatever it is, you know. Oh, you've forgotten it already. There you go now. <laughs> it's easy to forget. Whatever. Trigonometry. Uh, I, I feel this may have been partly the reason why I got a scholarship <laughs> that year because I figured I better know my stuff because I was a marked man. You were a marked man, yeah. And uh, I got a scholarship, thanks to God, in my intercert, and then I got a scholarship in my final year which helped me going through my engineering 
Okay. So it's worth pointing out that you were uh, educated Oscalga, which means in the Irish language, right? That's right. And your first dummy, Barclay, was a Gaelic-speaking dummy. That's correct. And so explain the idea of who Barclay was in the Shanachie story. Well, the point that hit me there was a very good friend of mine when I was 12 passed away at school. His name was uh, Gabriel Commons. His mother <coughs> used to send in tickets to concerts in the Francis Xavier Hall, many of them in Irish, and I'd go along to them. And I was struck by how sad the songs were and how little humour was uh, in the the various uh, acts that were on these shows. And I thought, gee, I must try and change that. So Barclay generally sang happy songs and uh, he told reasonably good clean jokes yeah. <laughs> and uh, raised a laugh I got great satisfaction out of hearing people being happy mm. at a show but Barclay was an old man explain, explain to our listeners from overseas what a Shanachie is well a Shanachie is, is, is an old gentleman of uh, the roads sometimes but maybe not but a guy who'd have people in his house and would tell stories about the old days about Cullen or Finn McCool or whatever. These storytellers would go around in an era before radio or before television. Or before podcasts. Or before podcasts, thank you, Gerald. Passing on and retaining the local tradition and passing on stories. And that would be the night's entertainment. People would gather in a house and this storyteller, I think Shanaki means storyteller. That's right, yes. Would come in and talk. You know, around the fire, people would gather and listen in the in the, in the candlelight or whatever. So it's a very rich part of uh, old Ireland, which Barclay represented. So you, you've gone into college and you I know because I'm your son, uh, were extremely intelligent and you came out with an engineering degree. All through college, did you keep the ventriloquism going? Oh, I did. Yeah, there were concerts all over Ireland every weekend. Perhaps I'd be on the boards doing my stuff. And then, uh, when I was 20, in 1956, an impresario from America sent a group of people over to do an X-Factor type of audition Mm. for Irish acts to go on an all-American TV show, the Ted Mac Original Amateur Hour. It had been on television for some 30 years, first of all radio. Pat Boone started his career on that show. Ventrilook was called... Paul Winchell started his career on that show. But they came to Ireland anyway looking to see what Irish young people did. And they uh, auditioned something like a thousand people and they chose 13 acts. And one of the acts was myself. I took a leprechaun with me to the audition. This element, I suppose, a leprechaun from Ireland. Surefire winner. Surefire winner, yeah. (laughs) So they asked me would I go along and I said sure. All of a sudden I was in the big time. And um, KLM flew you over. KLM flew us over. Dutch. We were met by a pipe band and given allegedly the keys of New York. Wow. I don't know whether that's true or not, but a key was waved around yeah. as if it was. May have been only a stage prop. Went on the show, 13 acts. People voted in by ringing up. I had a, an aunt, Florence Cunningham, who had a pub in Leitrim, Drum Shambo. And Leitrim, at that time, 56, there were no jobs in Ireland. And the boat was really the only the only mm. solution for many people. And the people from Leitrim used to go to my, some of them, used to go to my aunt's pub, have what they called an Irish wake, whereby they'd invite all their friends and they'd have a big 
get together and say goodbye now, we'll see you soon. They'd head off to America, many of them possibly never to return. They used to write to my Aunt Florrie and she used to write back to them. And uh, when she heard that her nephew was going to the Ted Mack show, <laughs> as far as I can see, she wrote to all these people from, from Shambo, etc., who had their wakes in her pub mm. and um, told them to watch out for George. Consequently, when the phones were ringing, I'd say I had quite a coterie of people from, from Shambo at the other end. And I got the most votes, so I was kept back for a second week. Votes came in again, and I came out on top, so I was kept back right. for the second week. And then third week, with all my friends gone, I was alone, the Irish man standing right. against 12 American acts. And yet again, I succeeded. <laughs> so okay. uh, this made me a three-time winner, which meant that I would be recalled for a major show in the Madison Square Garden in a year's time. That was the plan. Yeah. And I came back again to great uh, tathara and yeah. a couple of pictures in the paper and was interviewed on radio and so on and so forth. People said I had improved enormously and my material <laughs> was so fresh. It was absolutely <laughs> incredible. You're well, letting you're, out the secrets now, aren't you? I am but you had like, you've never <laughs> been somebody who's been, uh, you know, in all the years I've grown up with you boastful or let stuff get to your head but I mean at 20 years old to be I mean there was no television in Ireland then No, there, wasn't. there was uh, barely radio I suppose you're suddenly on the streets of New York which must have been something of a oh, sight to behold. Oh it was fantastic yeah Well you weren't there. I was Were you? I was, oh, I, you I, I was there then. Oh I didn't realise that, we missed you. at home. I was surprised you didn't butt in. Oh well I, I, I'm very shy you No know, you're not really. shy. Oh I'm awfully shy <laughs> And at that time, uh, 1956, we were brought up to the White House, outside of the White House. Ike was ill at the time, right. and Nixon uh, was his running mate. And there was a big sign as we left our hotel in New York saying, Stick with Ike and get stuck with Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> Which was actually quite well, it was, it was, yeah. Well, I mean, Ike was re-elected, uh, although he was ill. And then subsequently, as you know, yeah, we got stuck with Nixon. Nixon. We got stuck yeah, with Nixon. Nixon. And Where there was we? a young, there was a young, um, a young Irish senator, John F. Kennedy, waiting and in the quite wings. Quite funny enough, a lot of the Americans weren't very pleased with John F. Kennedy because right. he he was playing the racist card a bit. Yeah, well, sure, it was very. They racist. said, in other words, he was wanted American to be for the Americans, yeah. whatever their color, yeah. whatever their creed. Gerald, well, yes. so we missed your. Where are you from? Oh yes, well then, um, how did you how did you meet me? Oh yes, I know how you did. Well, actually, Gerald, you weren't there, was I not? No, you weren't. I had done my research. There you are, you see. You, I had Gerald Mark one. Oh dear me! Here you go again. The, the other dummy that I'd made myself, mm. because at that stage you, you you wanted to create a character. That was all important. The famous ventriloquist at that time was a fellow called Edgar Bergen, yeah. with a dummy called Charlie McCarthy mm. and Mortimer Snerd. And Mortimer Snerd was sort of a, a country bumpkin. But I had the schoolboy character. I think I'm wearing his, ja his, his jacket. You are wearing his jacket, yes. And his trousers. Not his trousers, no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I took these two in case I had to do a, a second performance. Mm. So there was a lot of fuss over the, 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 the first show, which was an all-Irish show, because the first act was on was a, was a trio from Trinity College. They sang a song in Irish, but it was a translation of Rock Around the Clock. 
Nine o'clock with all o'clock with three o'clock rock. Three o'clock car o'clock, two o'clock rock. All the Irish were totally scandalised by the fact that people in Ireland were singing rock, rock around music. the clock yeah. and they weren't singing Makushla or whatever, you know. <laughs> but the next week I, I sang, uh, I think it was a song from the green fields of Ireland and the third time I sang... Uh, Houses uh, are sailing. Uh, <laughs> well, not Phil the Fluter's Ball, but uh, anyway, one Some, of those Irish songs. So I made sure that yeah. apart from the humour... And the jokes and the Irish. Irish. <laughs> there was an Irish element too, which probably helped as well, you know. So that's right. You came along later because I, I um I couldn't afford a guy like you. No, no, because you got moving eyes, that's right, and you got moving eyebrows and you've got moving ears. And and, and they can show me cheek like that, you see? Yeah. You can see that I brush me cheek, you see that? Yeah. <laughs> and you can wag your ears and you can wink and so on. So there was a guy who was over from England. Uh, he was a ventriloquist and he advertised that he had a doll for sale. You know, I went along with a friend and uh, we purchased you. How much really? was he? Well, in actual fact, if you bought him from the store, he was 25 to 30 Irish pounds at the time. Wow, that's a and lot. I, I got him for seven pounds, which was my week's wages. A week's wages, right? Yeah. So that would and be... I'd say today uh, they cost about two thousand. Really? Me? That's right. <laughs> oh, I got it me own. <laughs> okay, here I am. So, had you made quite a bit of money then by the time you were like twenty, or was there was no, it just for the love of the game, no, no, like no, podcasting? No, 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 no. To give you an idea, when RTE, when Irish Television started in nineteen sixty-one, I was on. The first show, which went out on New Year's Eve, uh, I I was then asked to do a show the following Saturday on a children's show. So I had two shows that first week. And then I more or less was asked to repeat, go back the following week on the kids' show. And then I eventually had my own show, 13 weeks at a time. And this went on and on. But, say, my fee at the time might have been €7, which was my week's wages at the time. But the whole budget for the show was 20. <laughs> it was 20 euro. It was 20 euro. Right. So the producer had to do all the sets and all the thing and get the, get the time and the whole lot together for the other 13 quid, right. like, you know. So you were a big shot. Oh, I was a big shot, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, he was saying it's all over <laughs> Ireland, weren't you? I was, yeah. Yeah. Did any of you ask for your autograph? No, and then. Really? Yes. I remember I was out in, in uh, a hospital out in Baldoyle. It was called the Little Willie Hospital. Right. We will move fast on. Yes, okay. we'll dwell on that. But uh, while, I was, gags while, in there. while I was out there, uh, when I was finished, uh, these nurses ran up and they presented their arms to me. And I said, what's all that about? Would you ever sign me arm, please? Ah, lovely. Uh, I did, but I hoped that they'd wash themselves before they I think I saw you. I was in a hospital recently. I saw an old lady with a... Sure, sure. Oh, we'll how about that now? Oh, jeepers. <laughs> Said she never washed it. She never washed it off. Oh, isn't that lovely? That's lovely. We, we talked about that you were on opening night in Irish television, but for years before that, you were on radio. That's right. <laughs> Which yeah. uh, my American friends find hilarious that there was things like Irish dancing on the radio and, and uh, ventriloquism, mm-hmm. which are two 
parts of the arts that are so reliant on seeing the visual well, representation you know, of it. I, I, I find that fa- a fascinating comment mm. because there's also horse racing on radio. Yeah. In fact, you have football on radio. I know what you mean. There's a difference that because yeah. in horse racing, it's exactly the same image and you just need to know which horse is, is in charge. And, you know, if there was someone in the background going, he moved his lips a little bit there when uh, Gerald said something, you know, okay, but like there's Irish dancing, all you can hear is the clatter of feet. The actual abilities of the ventriloquist and the Irish dancers comes into question. A football commentary, the guy could say, your man's having a terrible game and he's hoofed that into the stands, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but I mean, to me, it's, it, it's a, a lovely thing in this time when we're snowed by technology that people were able to use their imaginations through a medium of radio, which at the time was the greatest thing. Because well, of, Edgar know. Bergen, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. made his fortune, and he really made a fortune on radio. And uh, he started around 1933, I think. He was the top performer and the highest paid performer for about yeah. 10, 15 years. If you can create the character, and if people sort of see photographs maybe of, of the character and they hear the voice and the there appears to be two people talking, then they sort of say, my goodness me, and that's, that, that's, uh, they identify with another person being at the, uh, at the thing. And the lip movement, eh, so what, you know? So you were, about 25, you opened Irish television, you were on Irish radio, you're still only in your mid-twenties. I know you got a, um, an engineering degree and you took a job at um, selling pumps and boilers to a burgeoning Irish semi-state facility. Um, we had to set up electricity supply boards and we had to set up railways and we had to set up all this kind of stuff. You had a nine to five uh, that was very straight. Yeah. Uh, what was the family, stroke, brothers, sisters, friends view of you? Like, were you uh, odd or were you, you know, was it, was, it, was it seen as kind of he's a bit mad, like, but he's doing this straight thing and at night you used to go in towards him on Friday and do your show, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. You see, I, I think ventriloquism, from a business point of view, is very useful. Because, yeah. believe you it or not... You get your clients to say something that they didn't well, need to. No, Sorry, it's a yeah. joke. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. But the point is, as a ventriloquist, you have to think for two people. You have to get the reaction that the guy is going to have to your comments. And I think it makes you more empathetic to people's feelings. You know, you, you, you identify with the other guy's point of view. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm selling something, and in fact, he used to do that. That's right. If I was making a presentation, I'd sometimes put your man sitting on the, on the couch and make a presentation to him, and then he'd tear strips off it at the end of it, saying, I didn't like this bit, didn't like that bit, didn't like the other <laughs> bit. Like, you know? And this way, you've got a feeling for, for people. And I, I think it has been very helpful because, as somebody said, what is truth? Like, you know, truth yeah. depends on where you're standing. Truth is, is it's, it's a dark night, uh, or truth is there is no light. Mm. Which is it? Both are true. You know, there is no light. It is dark. But which is true? Mm. You know? Can't both things in that case both be true? Both things can be true, yeah. yeah. And you have to accept that. Mm. But if you go in saying, no, this is only one truth, it's yeah. dark, then you're standing on somebody's belief, which is equally good to yours. Sure. Ventriloquism, just while we're on the subject of ventriloquism, it's kind of been a dying art that's, there's always a couple of ventriloquists in the world. You were probably the, 
you and a guy called Eugene Lambert were probably the two preeminent uh, ventriloquists in Ireland for 30 years together. That's right. He made a career of it with his whole family, puppet shows and all that kind of stuff. You stuck to the double jobbing kind of thing that mm-hmm. you did through the 60s. So you had your own show uh, in the 60s every Friday and every Monday to Thursday and, and Friday you go into an office That's just right. down the road. I presume you're making more money in the... Ventriloquism, or were you making more money in the plan? You see, I don't move. And this is what they always say. I don't move just for money. Okay, right. for me, this is my hobby. Yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy going out and being able to make people forget their worries, enjoy a show, have a laugh, maybe appreciate some of the art of ventriloquism, mm-hmm. and take a bow at the end. To me, that was satisfying. It also was very satisfying to be on a TV show. I mean, let's just do the math. Mm-hmm. Let, let's supposing you, you have 24,000 people listening to this podcast at the moment. That's a thousand man days of 24 hours. Mm-hmm. That's 3,000 working days of eight hours, seven days a week. 3,000 working days every week are being spent listening to your show. In my case, I think you could add multiplied by zero. Yeah, zero. Because there was only one channel in Ireland. There was only one channel. There were more people watching my show in Cork than watching the news. That means there were two people watching the show in Cork. (laughs) Isn't that right? (laughs) Nothing of the sort. But but there were about, I think there were about 250,000 people watching it. That to me was a challenge. I mean, uh, I felt it's incumbent upon me to try and make sure that those 250 man years were being <clears throat> used beneficially. Mm. We had a show where we had the young people who performed and danced and, and uh, made recitations. I was the link person. Whitney, I haven't forgotten you. Okay, don't. <laughs> <laughs> you might be out of the job if you do. Okay. And uh, with Barclay and with my other uh, other other. Uh, other puppets we presented this show mm. and it was it was liked and they they people wrote in and they put it competitions and so on and so forth but to me it was it was a labor of love i enjoyed it in the same with the with the engineering point of view i was a representative i was trying to persuade people to buy things the products that we were selling were hopefully as good and a lot better than other products that were around yeah and my motto at the time was you know on, until we make the sale, we represent our supplier. But after we make the sale, we make we represent the client. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that he gets what it says on the tin. And these were my driving Goals philosophies both, yeah. uh, from the very beginning. And it, it, it dates back to my father. My father was always fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Mm. He would not take the accepted sick leave in the civil service and got into terrible trouble with his colleagues. You know, they say, oh, you're entitled to take five days on unaccounted sick leave. And he said, I'm not sick like, you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as far as I know, this led to a bit of aggro <laughs> on yeah. the job. And still does with yeah. some people who sort of say, look, why is it that this people say, oh, I'm entitled to seven days unaccounted for sick leave, so which means I can take them. Whereas in actual fact, it starts out as being to cover the people who actually are sick, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. But anyway... When I was growing up, you were very famous. I mean, one of the funny stories which I tell about both of you is that uh, Dad used to do some 
specials from Dublin Zoo where you would you would throw your voice and make the animals uh, talk. That's right, yes. Maybe I was three or four years of age, but I had been to the zoo and there was a huge bison in the zoo that when I went up to the cage, he was at the front and he talked to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like going, Dad, Dad, the bison's talking to me. And you were saying, it clearly is. And the bison was telling me where it was from and knew my name. And I went home from the zoo unlike any other kid because my, my the animals when I went to the zoo talked. And then about three months would go by and uh, four months we'd go to the zoo again and I'd go tearing off to my friend in the bison enclosure. Um, my father would, of course, have forgotten probably by then that he'd, he'd made the bison talk to me. And I'd be a little five-year-old, four-year-old kid at the bison enclosure shouting in front of a whole bunch of other school kids up to the bison saying, come on down, it's me, it's Sean. And all the teachers telling the other kids to step away from the mad <laughs> child in the corner. And then eventually dad would come along pushing the my sister, George, and go, uh-oh, I've just made a boo-boo here. So then he'd have to put on a show with the bison talking in front of all the children. And there the teachers would be going, there's George causing major later in life problems for his son there. Gerald, did it go to your head? Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. I got a very big head, you see. <laughs> Plenty of space, isn't that right, George? What That's was right your there. best memory of the of the of of that 60s, the show well, that you Well, I, I remember something, Sean, I don't know if you remember it, but I used to come and see you every Saturday. When I was finished, uh, George here would take me and he'd say, Gerald, is it going away now? And he'd send you into the kitchen and I'd disappear. Yeah. And then you said, I want to say goodbye to George. To Gerald. And you'd say to Gerald. You'd say to me, yes. And uh, I'd say, uh, well, yes, okay. So uh, uh, take me outside the door, George. So George would take me outside the door. That's right. And he'd close the door. And uh, Therese would take you inside. Therese my mother. That's right. And I disappeared again. And then Sean would say, I want to wave goodbye to him when he's in his car. And uh, George would take me out and put me sitting in the car, isn't that right? That's right, sir. And he'd drive up the road. Sean would wave to me. And all the neighbours would be looking at George going up the road in his car saying, my God, what's that for that? Yeah, looked a bit crazy. And then he'd, he'd stop halfway up the road and, and take you out. And then he'd turn back and come back and he'd take me up and he'd put me into a suitcase. And I remember I was in my suitcase with me eggs, me legs around me arms, me, me head. And all of a sudden you came in. That's right. And you said, hello, Gerald. And I didn't say anything. You didn't. And you rushed downstairs and you said, George, Therese, Gerald is upstairs with his legs around his head and he, he wouldn't talk to me. I said he was dead in a case upstairs. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> Again, more trauma was that, for me. Was that the up. end of it? Well, it's, I can't remember. <laughs> but I think that's the end of it. <laughs> the question I wanted to know yes. uh, was, you, you mentioned earlier about it being your hobby. That's right. Did you always have that separation between church and state about your oh, job? Oh, definitely. Your, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, no way would I like to have been a full-time Vent. talking to you, Gerald. I'm sorry. I know, George. Well, you're a full-time dummy, Jerry. Oh, I am, of yeah, course. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. true. I'm full-time, full-time. Yeah, yeah. I can talk to dummies, John, very well. That's why I'm <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> and there is still an awful lot of ventriloquist around at the moment. I mean, you, you, you're you tending to be a bit dismissive. Uh, in America, you probably may or may not have heard, I think you saw him, Terry Fater. 
Yes. Who yeah. won X Factor. Yeah. yeah. Earning $10 million a year. In Vegas. In Vegas. There's Jeff Dunham, tours the world, earning, I'd say, $20 million a year yeah. with his various uh, dummies. There's Jay Johnson, who's mm-hmm. uh, got a one-man show. He was in one of the sitcoms in America while he was growing up, and now he's grown up and he's, he's, he's full-time. In, 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 and the Chuck Wood guy. David Strassman, uh, and then I put a link to that little girl that you saw who blew your socks off. And she was absolutely terrific. Oh, yeah. And she learned it all in two years. And it took you about ten. God, <laughs> say this and this. Is, what were you at? There's this astonishing young, I think, I think it was an X Factor or something was, as well. Yeah, she was, was on. America's Talent. America's, America's Got Talent. talent and yeah. uh, she's, uh, I, I sent the link to, to Dad and Gerald and they both looked at, at her and went, astonishing, didn't you? Oh, yes. I thought she was amazing. Absolutely. I want to know her phone number. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> She's and only she, 12. She has and a, she'll grow up. She'll grow up. What age are <laughs> you, Gerald? Old. What age are you? Uh, I, I, I think I'm around 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Do you know Bart Simpson? No, I don't. No, he's Bart a, Simpson. He's about your age. Well, he's, he's a cartoon character. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't mind those cartoon characters. It's not real, you know? No, actually. So There's only a voice behind them. Crazy. So the other question I have for um, primarily George is the, 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 the sort of Ireland that you've seen growing up from the 40s, 50s, 60s. What are the sort of observations that you give, you know, looking back on where we've come and, and, and what do you feel is, is great and what do you think might not be so great? Gonga, George, gonga. What do you mean, goma? Grunt the old man alert. Grunt the old man alert. That's right. He always says that, you know, when he's allowed to give a rant. Okay, rant away. Okay. Well, my me- recollection at school, going to tenements, the Vincent de Paul Society, maybe 12 people in two rooms, toilets out the back. Absolute terrible. And uh, funny enough, my memory of them was that they were sort of happy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, happy in squalor, which uh, we don't like. Now you don't have that. We don't have that, which I think is absolutely fantastic. We are regarded now as a, a grown-up nation, but I think we are losing various aspects of our, our ethos as we grow. The caring element is now being replaced with the commercial. For example, when I grew up, uh, when, I w- when I went for a job, when I qualified, I was offered a job in Shell in uh, Frawley in England. I think the salary was around £750 a a year this would be 1958 and uh, I was also offered a job in University College Dublin at 300 pounds a year and I took the job in Dublin because I felt that I wanted to be here and to contribute and to give something back as they say today you must be very proud of me, who's just buggered off for 21 years. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> you are giving it to the world. You're giving it to the world. You know, shape yeah, and size, advertising, you know? great. But, uh, but you see, that's the difference between myself and you. That's the 20-year gap, mm. shall we say, uh, or 27-year gap. But I think in the last 27 years, while you've been away, mm. it has become even more commercially orientated. Whereas everybody is concerned, it's somebody else's problem to solve. Mm. And we talked about many of these problems before we started this podcast. There's a Jesuit who is a philosopher of sorts or a spiritual character. He makes a number of things that if you want to change the world, you first of all have to change yourself. We can all give out about the other guy 
and what he isn't doing. And as somebody said, if you're pointing a finger at somebody, remember there are three fingers pointing back at you. And you have to ask, are you making your contribution? And I feel that we have made enormous strides. When I was starting out, there was about 400,000 people employed in Ireland. That was around 1958. And now there are 2 million people employed, a fantastic increase. That level of employment brings its own responsibilities to the individual as well as to the state. Mm. And the state can only function if the individual performs. Mm. And I'm sad a little bit that I feel that the individual is losing his sense of personal responsibility. That makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think I, I um, it's a big long speech. Anyway, no, you're all I, gone to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, I think we knew it to be star of the podcast talking about civil servants and and the fact that we had to build a country, you know, very quickly, and a, a huge part of your life was in the service of both cultural contribution to that through Gerald and yourself and Barclay and and Thank through you. the. Um, the rolling up the sleeves and getting corporations tooled up. And there's something very creative about what you did with your life. And I feel there's a lot of creativity gone missing a little bit in the country that we don't tend to apply. And we are quite a creative, known to be quite a creative people in terms of our writers and our musicians and our and our ventriloquists. Oh, and, very good. Yes, and, don't uh, forget us. And, and so I, I just feel that there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there seems to be problems that seem to be people would just, as you would say, take responsibility, solvable, and we just don't seem to solve them. But I, I said to you, we talked about it before, about the STEM subjects. Yeah. Now, I chose engineering as a degree uh, path because I was good at science, technology, uh, engineering. engineering, and math. Yeah. These were practical subjects. I mean, I remember consciously not doing history because I wanted to do chemistry. Yeah. But I think I might have been wrong because I think the arts give you a reason for living, whereas the STEM subjects only give you the tools to live. And as somebody said recently, it should be STEAM subjects, yeah. science, technology, arts and maths, mm. so that the soul goes back into the activities we do. Yeah. And that, I think, is your point. The creativity or the soul has to be embedded again mm. into these s- subjects. And we, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be directed only towards the implementation for monetary gain in the various activities. Perhaps it is being focused and channeled towards towards something which will collapse in the end. Yeah. Because, you know, we're talking about robotics and all these sort of things that, you know, Sure, there'll be artificial intelligence like you. Yeah, indeed. Wait line, <laughs> wait line in charge, I'm telling you. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, there we are. So I do I, feel I do see uh different issues. I mean I think you could even despite all the crap that's going through right now, America is probably <laughs> still the I um, heard that. That's not a bad yeah, language. That's good. That is definitely not a bad language. You, all right, you can read all that right, in the newspaper okay. today. <laughs> I was told before I came on by my father that he didn't want to use any bad language. So those of you who are regular listeners Well I'm present and I'm just a young fella. Isn't yeah, that well right, that George? was the reason right. Dad said <laughs> there's children present. Um but uh you know, America is still for all its flaws right now, probably the place where most patents are, are, are recorded every yes. year and it's still a creative country I've 
I worry about the effect that Trump has. Australia, I feel, in government is far more creative than we are. We have a, an unfortunate history that got uncovered in the 80s of backhanders and dodgy politicians and corruption, which is not unique to Ireland by any means, which we've, we've tried to get rid of. But we still have the talky fest and the lack of action and the lack of anything and a revolving door of ministerial appointments where nothing really gets done. And that's very frustrating. And there's one thing else, John, to <coughs> yeah. tell you about 1956. What the happened? most important thing that happened to him in 1956. Go on, Georgia. All right. Well, I was on a concert in the Gresham Hotel and there was a group of harpists on. They were very good. I was compared on the show. And uh, while I was there, this young lady in her school uniform comes up to me and says um, she'd lost the key to her harp. And I said, oh, well, I must help you look for the key to your harp. So we both went round to the stage, uh, backstage and round, and eventually went to the porter, and eventually we found the key to her harp. And uh, that young lady, 11 years later, Turned out to be my wife. Yes. So now. The aforementioned trays. The aforementioned trays. Who thought and we would use the word aforementioned? There you go. I must say that she has been very patient. Oh, she has to be with you, that's for sure. <laughs> that. Uh, she's been very patient and loving and raised a fantastic family. There you go. You can't, you can't disagree with that, Sean. My last and funny stories of, of both of you was when I was working in Ireland in the advertising business, probably around 1990. And hello, Brendan O'Reilly, because I think you listened to the podcast. There was an ad we were trying to do for 7up, which oh, at the gosh, time used yeah, Fido yes. Dido, possibly your last public appearance um, oh, well, on yeah, a billboard on. anyway, I'd say. Yes. The lads in the office had an idea, which was the, the, the Fido Dido character from 7up with a dummy on his knee saying it's ghoul to be clear. Uh, I told them, well, my father has Gerald and Gerald That's would right. be great. And they came yes. out to see Gerald. Yes. And when yes. they came out, my father had Gerald on his knee and they yes. were talking to the two boys and Gerald was engaging to them just like he is right now. Yes, yes, yes. Gerald was saying stuff like, well, will you need me or do you need the other fella as well? And they were saying, no, Gerald, we just need you. And they were having a conversation with both of them, with both, with both Gerald and my father, and then arranged that Gerald was perfect for the part, Great. signed you up on the spot, That's right. and said that you'd be needed next Wednesday, and yes. then said goodbye to my dad, yes. bye to Gerald, Cheerio. and then halfway into town realised they were talking to the dummy. And so was I. I was talking to two of them. You were. <laughs> the other oh, dummy was dear. Tom Kelly. Uh, speaking of talking to yourself, you launched a book. I did indeed. I uh, about book, 15 yeah. years ago, I suppose. No, no. Well, 2003. Yeah, you're right. Mm, there well you go. Done. Time yeah. flies. Yes, time flies. Done my research. Uh, it's, it's mainly about my activities in the ventriloquial field and leading up to it and about the strange things that happened along the way. One of the last questions is, and I'm fascinated to hear your answer to this, is what, what do you say to, first of all, uh, a young boy or girl who's interested in ventriloquism Yes. today, both of you. Gerald, this yes, might be for yes, you yes. as well. Uh, what advice would you give them? And also, secondly, you know, what advice do you, would you give back to just um, your, your younger self or some, somebody just who's a teenager or just finishing school today? Well, on ventriloquism, I'd say there are so many heroes to look into or to follow or to examine. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, as in my day, getting to see or hear these people. I used to be crouched over the radio listening to AFN in the old days, trying to get Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy 
now I have a briefcase full of all their recordings, wow, <laughs> hundreds yeah. of them. Uh, that I bought years ago. But to segue just briefly before you finish yeah. that question, because we'll probably end on your answer to that question. Uh, there's a nice sort of completion to the story because I remember when I got into advertising, you found out that there was no record of you on television because they recorded over all your tapes of your shows. And I remember going towards you and thought I'd surprise you with finding something. And we found one thing that you looked at and went, oh, that wasn't very good. It was, a, <laughs> it was a, a show after the event about some of the very famous people. And it is worth mentioning a lot of the very famous artists, uh, even still working today in Ireland, uh, made their first appearance with George and uh, Gerald here on the, on the show. And then tell us what happened. Uh, you, you finally have an, a beautiful record of your career that you can watch. Tell us what happened, that story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Ted Next show. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the American show, I remember when I was doing it, which was sponsored by Geritol yeah. for tired blood. Yeah. I saw a guy with a camera. Cine 8 or something. Yeah. Cin- Cinema 8 yeah. or something. One of these. The, he was taking a, a recording of the show. So that was in 1956. I was back there again, as I told you, in 1958. And then about 10 or 15 years later, I started trying to uh, see if I could find, is there any record of the show, you see? Mm. So couldn't find anything. There had been a a two-year gap between my return and when I was on because Geritol also sponsored a quiz show called 21. And there was a big scandal about that show because they found that the contestants were getting the answers before they oh, this went is the on. Charles Van Doren or whatever. Yeah, there's uh, a movie made of it. There is a movie made of it. Yeah. I think it's called Quiz Show, the movie. Yes, the Quiz Show movie. Yeah, great finds. So it was a terrible scandal mm. and Geritol pulled immediately their sponsorship from the Quiz Show. Yeah. But they also happened to be sponsors for the Ted Mack Show. So that got pulled. So I, I kept getting letters saying, uh, we won't be needing you in September at the moment because some yeah. things have to be ironed out like now, at this time, it was great because I was dying with pneumonia and yeah. Asian flu at this time. And I nearly turned my toes up, as they say. Anyway, at the end of the year, I had recovered and uh, was able to go back in 58 to participate in the show. To cut a long story short, I hit on, a, on an internet connection. I got in touch with this guy down in San Francisco and I said, look, what's this about the Ted Mack show? He says, oh, yeah, I, I have inherited all the tapes. And I said, well, would you by any chance have the 1956? So he looked it up and he had uh, two I did first time in 56 and the one I did in 58. But they, he said, the story is, he says, they were left to me. And in the old days, the Americans had a bunker in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. That is also a very fond Norlin Hardy fan. Exactly. <clears throat> and they had these this big bunker where the great and the good would be whisked off to in the event of a nuclear attack. Now, this is 1956-58 when the Cold yeah. War was at its highest. And they had, I don't know, billions of dollars there and food and that to keep them going for a couple of years so that when the radiation had fallen down, they could come out to start again. And eventually the need for the bunker's size grew, so they had to move out of that bunker to another one. Where that one is, I don't know. But the one in the Blue Ridge Mountains was donated to the state for the National Archives. He donated all the tapes to the National Archives, so deep in the bowels of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia were the tapes of my show. And I said, well, can I get a copy? And he said, yeah, but they're a bit expensive, which they were. But uh, anyway, we struck a deal. And he said, it's expensive because 
they take out the, the movies, they clean every frame, right? And they then put it onto a DVD. Yeah. And he says it looks like it was recorded yesterday. It does great. It's in black and white. Yeah. And in due course, three DVDs come along, and I could sit back and enjoy this young fella. Ah, oh, this angelical fella. Well, it's kind of weird looking at your dad at 20, you know. <laughs> it's kind of, oh. He's only 20 now, isn't that right? Oh, yes, the other thing is uh, George is born on the 29th of February. So he's born in 1936, that's right. So, so he, he only had 20 birthdays. So he's only had 20 birthdays. And so he's, he's looking a, forward to his 25th. He was a cheap date as a dad. <laughs> Anyway, finish the point before we get up, we get kicked out of the room. But aspiring ventriloquist needs to study all of the various material that's available to him or her. And enjoy it and go out and, and try it. By trying, you improve. You can learn from all these people, from the books that are available. There are DVDs available now. They're absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And they will teach you the rudiments, no problem. But then use it for the benefit of others. Does it bite you? What? Or, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be the sort of thing like what happened with you with the, yeah. the Sheriff Creek uh, story that you get into it to such a... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I are you surprised it. that you're still doing it? Oh, little this, little this. There's only a little this, only a little this. I, 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 I want to tell them something yeah. as well. Among life's dying embers, these are my regrets. When I'm right, no one remembers... When I'm wrong, no one forgets. How's that? Very good. I think that's an interesting, an interesting roundup. That's probably the advice you'd probably give to a, a, a person anyway who's who's nothing to do with ventriloquism. Or what would you say to your young nieces or a young person today who's entering the I'd world? I'd say remember that that to change the world, you have to change yourself. To take responsibility for your actions, to listen and to hear when you're listening to see and to see the magic around you and to do your best at whatever you take on. That's it, more or less. That's excellent. George and Gerald, it was a pleasure having oh, it's you nice both seeing you too, Sean. on the show. Um, I normally play out to the famous uh, Stop the Pigeon music, but yeah. I was wondering if you two would like to sing well, us out I, on the show. I will, and maybe you'll join me because... I the north and I've been south and I the east and west. Oh, I've been just a rolling stone. Still, there's one place on this earth we always love the best. Just one little spot we call our own. Oh, Dublin candy heaven with coffee at eleven and a stroll, a little stroll in Stephen's Green, in Stephen's Green. Grafton Street's a wonderland, there's magic in the air. There are diamonds in the lady's eyes and gold dust in her hair. So if you don't believe us, why then come and meet us there? Where? In Dublin on a sunny summer morning. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much. That was Gerald and Shorsha on Pint with Shawnee B. I'll catch you all next time. Thanks a lot. Bye, Gerald. Bye now. Be seeing you again sometime.